Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming to the Commonwealth Club to join us for this program, and also welcome to all the audience uh, that are viewing this program at home. So, building a future of Black and Asian coalition, uh, it sounds like it's a, uh, it's, it's sounds like a very, very deep topic. We all know that historically, the two communities have experienced lots of conflicts, maybe in different neighborhoods through. The, you know, the time, the history of time. However, many of us feel that the two communities actually have shared a lot, also have a lot, a lot in common. Um, just look at this last two years. Uh, just about two years ago in May of 2020, with the tragic killing of George Floyd that ignited the whole world, we all felt so angry, you know, about what was going on. We started to talk about solidarity. We started talking about how we should bring communities together. And before we know it, then we started to, have to, to see a wave of anti-AAPI hate that is not only in the San Francisco Bay Area, but also in the country. The more the two groups have been talking together, the more we feel that we really need to really take some solid actions to build solidarity. We really want to thank the San Francisco Human Rights Commission for being a champion of bringing communities together and director uh, Cheryl Davis of the Human Rights Commission, we thank you for your vision of putting together the Stand Together SF program and the campaign for solidarity. These are all very important, not just talking about it. We really want to get into action. To, it's a call for action. So today's program is a call for action. And we are very grateful to have a group of community um, activists and very dedicated folks that have been working in the trenches. And today they're going to share with us some of their experience as to why they think this is a good time to talk about this. It is actually a very important time to talk about this topic, their perspectives from, from working in the different neighborhoods in the city, and how do they think is the, some of the best approach to build this coalition? What does that mean? How do we build this, build more solidarity? How we can support each other? So without further ado, um, today we have six great panelists. Uh, let's start with, with no particular order. Um, Renard Monroe. Renard is executive director and founder of Youth First. Renard, uh, I see that our two co-moderators co already joining us anxiously. <laughs> uh, first, uh, um, we have Michelle Miu, our, our member of our, also our board of directors, and Michelle is, of course, host of the Michelle Miu program. And Derek Brown, our co-moderator co today, who is the senior fellow at the, at the Leo J. McCarthy Center of, for Public Service and the Common Good. Is that right? Do I get it right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Renard is here. Thank you. With uh, Youth First, uh, active in the Eastview neighborhood in San Francisco and citywide. Right? Correct. <laughs> and next we have uh, Sarah Wan, who is Executive Director of uh, Community, Community Youth Center of San Francisco. Sarah is also the co-director of API Council in San Francisco. Uh, and next we have Shakira Simli, our friend. Uh, Shakira is the Executive Director of Booker T.J. Washington Center for Community Services. And Shakira is also the first Director of Equality at the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. We really look forward to hearing from all your experiences. And last but not least, John Osaki, the Executive Director of the Jap Japanese Community Youth Council, which at, uh, for 50 years have been actually now serving uh, youth and ser family and services citywide. So welcome, panelists. Let's go with it. Thank you. Thanks, Claudine. 
Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you to the APA Heritage Foundation, Claudine Chang, the Commonwealth Club of California for giving us this opportunity and this platform. And of course, Leo T. McCarthy Center for uh, partnering with us and putting this together. And uh, last but not least, the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. Um, I'm Michelle Miao, and I'm very excited for this conversation. I think, you know, where we can start off is, um, I, you know, I think all of us, we remember, right, our, our neighborhoods where we grew up, the relationships that we fostered, the people that we met, uh, the challenges, maybe even, you know, meeting folks in our neighborhood. But um, they all they all mean something. And so I'd love for all of our speakers tonight. Let's start by sharing, you know, what maybe a personal story, your relationship, your connection to your neighborhood, especially the neighborhood that you service and you're committed to. So we'll begin with Renard. <laughs> Put me first. Huh? All right. Um, I work and lived in the OMI Lakeview area in San Francisco. Um, this neighborhood means a lot to me. First and foremost, I'm raising three children in Lakeview and OMI district. Um, in our community, it was really close-knit, and everybody knew each other and looked out for one another. And as things, time go on with gentrification and, and those things, people get pushed out of San Francisco, we start hitting adversity. And I'm just trying to stay here and hold on and, and bring some positivity and some sustainability to the community. Um, I've been at Youth First for 22 years now. I was the, I'm also the founder, not just the executive director. Um, I started this program because I was challenged at that time by Willie Brown to bring after-school programs to the area. Um, because we were pretty much a desert, and we're still a desert with, with food. This was a food desert. We still don't even have a, a grocery store where people can walk to. So um, I took on that challenge. I started in a program way back when called Weed and Seed, um, which was only two days a week. And he was like, this needs to be every day. You need to bring some program over here. Whatever you do, I'm going to support you. And the great Mike Brown, who started Inner City Youth, helped me get it started and off the ground. And to this day, we're running strong, and I've been able to give back to the community. And I think the greatest um, feeling that I have about the neighborhood is not only have I, I have kids in a program, but the parents that come by actually came through my program as well. So the circle of life has been great. And um, I just got a text literally the other night, and it was an amazing text because a teacher uh, by the name of Alma Alberto, who works at um, uh, Jose Ortega Elementary School. She came through my program, and she's now a teacher back in the district. And when she was in high school, she invited me to her graduation. And I showed up just thinking I was there to watch and root on one of my former students. And her whole, um, she was the valedictorian, and her whole speech was about how I inspired her to be a teacher. And she went off to St. Mary's College in Moraga, graduated, and now she's teaching right here in her own neighborhood at Jose Ortega, and she's referring students to my program. That's a great feeling. And to finish, I just never thought, like myself, as she 
Michelle just stated, I never thought, like, growing up in my neighborhood that I would accomplish so many things um, in the neighborhood. Um, I grew up in a single-family home. I'm the first child in my family to go to college, get a degree, and um, it's just it's just been a great, great accomplishment, and I, I just want to keep going and inspiring others that if you can see it, you can achieve it. Okay, so I'm still I'm second, huh? <laughs> um, I think for me as a director of CYC Community Youth Center, um, if you're around long like me, I've been with CYC for 25 years. We always used to call Chinatown Youth Center because that's where we were where we were found in 52 years ago to really, especially serving high risk Asian youth in the Chinatown because there was a lot of violence and also tension back then. And we have changed the name in 2000 Community Youth Center because we really see that we can't really work in silo. We really have to work in different, across different communities together to build the best community for our youth. So about 12 years ago, there's a major racial tension in Bayview between the Asian and the black community. There were many violence incidents that happened to the point that a 1,000 people actually have a rally or actually have um, a demonstration at City Hall. For a lot from the Asian community have outcry for how much that we have been being like mistreated or has been the target for violence. And at that time, definitely a, a few group of concerned community members that come together that figure out that we really need to work hand, hand in hand and also side by side with the black community, especially in the Bayview Hunters Point, to really mobilize any change in that community. So 12 years ago, we started the Bayview Youth Services in the Bayview area on 3rd Street. Um, I would say that it's not easy, and it's still not easy today, but we definitely see that with the past 12 years, we've built a lot of partnership. We are being started to invite it to be around the table to talk about multicultural events, and there are even incidents we help each other out. And if you remember at the pre beginning of the pandemic, there was an incident where there is a senior elder that hasn't been that has been attacked uh, at the Bayview Hunters Point area while he's collecting recyclables. Many people do not know the story. At the end of the day, the reason why we were able to identify the victim is because one of our black community partners called our worker to tell us he identified the victim and, and asking him to stay there and wait for us to get to the scene because of the language and cultural barrier. So we were able to actually reach out to the victim for the incident. And there's a lot of people from the black community actually offer a helping hand while we're doing with that incident. So that really what drives me and what is really, I think, keep us continue. Nowadays, Bayview, 30% actually African-American community residents and about 27% are Asian residents. But most of these Asians, they don't really live in a Bayview Hunters Point because they just go there to go home to sleep or to have their own family only. They don't really reach out to the community because there's not enough resources out there for them. So we will continue and continue this drive to continue to serve the Bayview Hunters Point residents, but also really looking from a bridge building and community building perspective. Um, thank you so much, Renard. Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, I look up to you all. So everyone's been in the game for like 22 years, but I'm a baby ED. Um, so I'm the director of the Booker T. Washington Community Service Center in Fillmore. Um, and I have been in my role for uh, LBA a year on July 19th. Um, John told me being in an ED that a year is like dog years, so it feels like much longer, but I love it. Um, I live in the Western Edition as well. Um, I've been, I'm a 
transplant. Um, so I have been in the community for almost 14 years. So I grew up in Harlem, New York, and I moved to the Harlem of the West. And I wanted to make sure that I was in a black neighborhood where I saw people that looked like me. It was a bit of a culture shock coming to San Francisco and wondering where our folks at. Um, over the past um, 14 years, I've put my blood, heart, tears, and soul into the Western edition and into the Fillmore um, and feel incredibly incredibly privileged that I get to show up every day um, and safeguard and promote and protect um, San Francisco's oldest black-led, black-serving institution. So Booker T has been around for 103 years. Um, uh, we have been at our location for 70 years. So when folks try to tell me I'm in Pack Heights, I'm like, nah, nah, nah. White folks came up around us. Um, and uh, we underwent a major renovation in 2018 to add uh, 50 units of permanent supportive housing. Um, and it, I'm, my goal is to make sure that folks just walk through one door. No matter who you are, where you come from, especially for our black community, you walk through one door and you get everything that you need. Um, and we serve zero from 99. And I am inspired by 100 years of black love, sweat, tears, joy, and pain that has gone into protecting and building this site and also the neighborhood. Um, I work in community with other nonprofits in the Western Edition and Fillmore, um, like uh, Ella Hill Hutch Community Center and the African American Art and Culture Complex, and we work together to stabilize and um, support the community from all sides. And we do this work in collaboration with our folks in Japantown, which I'm sure John will talk about. Um, and for me, we're doing generational work. Um, it's not just about direct service. It's not just about a hot meal. Um, you've had over 10 generations of black families who have grown up at Booker T. And I want to make sure that the next 100 years is the same. Um, and we can't do this work in silos. As Sarah says, um, I have a lot to learn. I learn every day from my young people. Um, they keep me honest. Um, I am never going to try to do any TikTok dances ever again in my life. Um, <laughs> but um, this, you know, we don't turn anyone away. And th we serve a rainbow coalition of folks who come through our doors because we know what the real enemy is, which is white supremacy, which we'll talk about that. But um, I'm proud to be here and to learn and listen from folks who've been in the game longer than I have um, and make sure that we keep showing up for our folks. So thanks. So the question was about neighborhoods, and a lot of people wonder why there aren't more uh, Japanese Americans living in Japantown. And a couple of things that I'd like to share with folks about my neighborhood. So I'm born and raised here in San Francisco, very much intertwined with the, with the Japantown community since I was a young child. Um, and what I'd like to share with folks about my neighborhood is that, first and foremost, it became Japantown because that's where Japanese were allowed to live. And, and that's really how it, that's really the origins of this area. But there are no Japanese living in that area because our community was forced out not once, but twice. Once during World War II, when the entire community was incarcerated. Uh, and then again, in the 1960s and 70s, when our community was bulldozed over um, in 
in the uh, guise of urban renewal and the redevelopment of the Western Addition. And so what we have left, though, is something that we are very proud of. Uh, today, Japantown in San Francisco is one of three um, that exist are left here in the entire United States. And one of the things that I, I think is very relevant to this conversation that we are incredibly proud of is that many folks don't know that when our entire community was removed during the war, uh, that is when the great migration of many black families came to the West Coast, came to San Francisco, and they, of course, just like the Japanese, were allowed to live in certain areas. And so one of the areas was Japantown. So they moved in to the area where many Japanese families were used to occupy, but of course they were incarcerated at concentration camps, and so many black families moved into the area. And what I like to share with folks is that after the war, when, Japanese, when many Japanese families did finally return to the area, they lived in very much in harmony with the black community that was there. There was no infighting, right? There was no uh, violence, right? There was no major animosity towards each other. They lived together. And I think that's something that myself, many members of our community continue to be very proud of. There's many, many examples of our communities working together, right, and lifting each other up. And I'll, I'll talk more about that later, but I think um, we are very proud of our history in the Western edition of working together, finding common ground, finding opportunities, right, to be allies for one another. And it very much is a reason why uh, I am who I am and why I continue to do the work that I do. It's amazing. Thanks so much. Let's give them a hand. And, and John, I don't know if you were cheating or not, but you kind of hit on some of my questions, but that was fantastic thus far. So, I want us all to go a little bit deeper. Um, as you all know, there's an incredible history in each of the districts we all represent. Uh, give us some context uh, about the history of the relationship between the black and Asian communities in your neighborhoods and, and perhaps ways in which you had to organize your support for one another. Sure. Well, I'll just share a little bit about my father, who um, he's, you know, he's no longer with us. But if you met him, he is the most soft-spoken, mild-mannered uh, gentleman. But he was incarcerated for four years uh, during World War II. And that um, anger for being incarcerated for your race is something that he always carried with him. And so when he came across a situation where... Um, he felt there was a significant injustice um, before him, that anger came out. And an instance where that came out was in the 1960s when the first redevelopment project started. Um, he was one of the few, there weren't a lot, he was one of the few Japanese Americans who joined a group called the Western Edition Community Organization. And he worked with organizers like Hannibal Williams, like Mary Rogers, to literally stand in front of bulldozers to try to stop the, uh, the flattening, right, and the bulldozing of their neighborhood. And 
What I, you know, what I'd like to share with folks about that is what I, I think is so interesting is that was an impossible fight, right? The, v, the redevelopment agency was sanctioned by the state, so there really was no local oversight over it. So they had unfettered power to do what they want, right, under the, the, the banner of urban renewal. And so there was no way to stop their projects at that time, and yet this band of organizers, which included my father, fought that fight anyway because they felt somebody needed to stand up to speak up for the neighborhood because at that time, the black community, the Asian community had very little political power. The only thing they could do in their neighborhood was organize together. And there was no way to win that fight, but they had, um, they had very uh, important small wins for the community after their organizing efforts. The city started to put in place um, systems where they had to listen to the community. There had to be opportunities for community input where, as before, that was not even something that was a consideration, right? But because of these activists, because of the work that they did, there were... The, the government started to rethink, right, how they went about doing their business. And it was because of this very small band of activists, right, who were, who were adamant about protecting their neighborhood. So that's something, again, I find, you know, I have always been uh, very proud of. I sometimes find it hard to believe that my father was out there standing in front of bulldozers. But, you know, that's what he felt that adamantly about protecting his neighborhood. I do want to piggyback off of that and continue to tell the story of the Western edition, um, particularly between the, the black and Japanese community. Um, after, uh, during internment um, and incarceration of Japanese citizens, um, uh, black folks stepped up and did a lot of work to help protect some of the social services that were being that were taken away um, from the Japanese American community. One of those um, services was a vocational learning language school, um, which incidentally became housed at Booker T. Um, so that was over, I would say, eighty years ago. You say? Yep. And um, over time, that relationship grew where you had um, different um, program staff and executive directors from that community continue to stay with that organization. So to, to, to this day, when you come to Booker T, JCYC, and Chibi Chan, the preschool, is a legacy of protecting community assets, education, and learning. And I cannot... I cannot stress the importance of protecting physical spaces in community. When so much of San Francisco has been changed and gentrified and whitewashed, it is incredibly important for folks to walk in, in their neighborhoods and see people that only look like them, but institutions filled with people that look like them and still have a connection and tie to the community that is still there. Um, and when it comes to um, continued relations with the community, with Booker T, we've seen different waves that has changed in the neighborhood. So from we, we've seen redevelopment also during Vietnam War, where we had um, the uh, refugees from Vietnam, from Cam Cambodia, moved to the Western Edition. A lot of those young people also came to Booker T um, for child care, for services and support. Um, you know, I feel like black folks have always kept our arms open 
um, to community. Um, we know what it's like to be otherized and to be treated like we do not belong here. That's how America, how this country was founded. Um, and I feel like for us, that sort of hospitality, the hospitality and that connection and care and empathy from our community has always been there, always. And I, we have seen that um, through the work and advocacy of black people from our work through the civil rights movement to our movement for black lives, um, where we not just make room for ourselves, because when you change things for black people, you change it for everyone. Um, and that has been true and continues to be true in the Western tradition. And I don't want to talk about history like it's just something in the past. This is living history. A lot of these folks are still alive. Um, it was only a generation ago where these things were happening. And the fight is not over. It's not over. But a lot of that work is happening through relationships, um, through institutions, um, through community ties, through our elders, and also, I'd say, through our youth in schools. Um, so I'll stop there. Thank you. Sarah? Thank you. A lot, I think, have to echo on the service level is how that we actually joint force the Asian and black community from the Baby Hunters Point neighborhood to really advocate the resources that we needed to continue uh, the baseline services, basically, to our youth and our families and also to the school. Um, I think one of my favorite programs that we have at the Bayview is called Bayview Youth Advocates, where we actually recruit young people from the Bayview area, especially from the two high school, Philip Burton and also Thurgood Marshall High School. That is a multicultural youth leadership program Program that is not only a learning about how to become a leader, but really also learning about each other's historical or cultural uh, backgrounds, our, our similarity, our struggles, our immigration history, and how our family actually come to Bayview and started to really build their own roots in the Bayview Hunters Point area. We really believe that you are really the core center to mobilize any community change. And then they also could be the ambassador to talk to their family members, their parents, their grandparents about what they learned through storytelling, who really learning about history, and then also mobilize change. So every year, they also organize a Bayview Youth Summit, where they invite other young people, also from Philiburton and also Thurgood Marshall High School, to join in this one-day summit to really explore different area. As a young people, how can they mobilize community change to build a violence-free community, and also to talk about subjects that really, really sensitive to them, including mental health services, and all the other services that the young people are seeing that that's a major gap in a Bayview community and how to develop an action plan to talk to the key stakeholders, whether it's the mayor's office, where is the board of supervisor to mobilize all this change. So this is just one example of how we work together. I, I think they covered a lot of the history. <laughs> um, I'm just going to touch and, and ruffle a little feathers as far as honesty and understanding. Um, when we're dealing with race, it's a touchy situation. Um, building coalitions, building co collaborations is very important. But if we don't have understanding and love and the information that it takes to build coalitions, to build unity, we'll never get where we need to be. Um, these systems to divide us have been in place since day one. And the old saying that we all have heard before is Rome wasn't built overnight. So a lot of, as soon as this panel um, was assembled, I got a lot of text messages, a lot of emails. Like, what, what are you guys going to talk about? What are you guys going to discuss? If you're not covering this, then that panel was useless. Um, when you deal with data, when you deal with um, all the things that people want you to accumulate, we are living data. 
we know what's right. We know what's wrong. Our eyes don't lie. So in our communities, we have seen change in every community in San Francisco, right? And if we don't come together to make a change, I mean, really come together and really have honest conversations and, you know, um, to, to quote James Pingola, who's doing the work, right? The work is your life. The work is your love. The work is your community, right? If you don't put your blood, sweat, and tears, as Shakira said, then it is worthless. We can't push things under the rug. We know that these systems were in place to divide us. And for a while, and, and still even present, we fell for that, right? If we're really being honest, you know, at our communities as a whole, there's a lot of positive things going on in these communities. But guess what happens? We'll hear about the negative before we hear about the positive. You guys know that. So when you watch the news, they're going to show an African-American man pushing down an Asian person on a subway train in downtown Oakland, in downtown San Francisco. But they're never going to see these type of things on Channel 2. You're not going to see it because that would bring people together and say, hey, they're working together to make change. People love drama. That's why there's TVs, right? So this panel can come up here and tell you all about what we're trying to accomplish. But if you're not taking it home and taking it to your community to make the change, then it is useless. We have so many things that we can accomplish together, not just these two communities, right? There's so many things that we can accomplish if we understand each other, love each other, because at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. Right. We want a safe place to live. Right. We want great education. Right. We want lower gas prices. <laughs> right. We want all of these things in our life. And I don't understand why the color of someone's skin, the vernacular that they choose, gets you ostracized. Right. So I'm going to be that guy on the panel that's off script a little bit because I really want us to be better people after we leave here tonight. I'll join Renard and uh, also go off script. <laughs> Sorry, Derek. But uh, but well, okay, let's get honest. Let's get honest. This uh, yes, right? Like many of us who are doing some of the work, who are constantly in the conversation, understand that there is a powerful force that's driving the wedge, and that is making it difficult for us year after year, generation after generation, to really keep the momentum of our coalition. And I think that if we want to be honest, I think we need to talk about like, okay, how do we have these conversations though with our communities? I'm going to turn to John and Sarah to focus on the Asian community a little bit because yeah, we got folks and, and uh, in different generations who are scared um, and they're living off of that fear and they're seeing, you know, what's on local news and to Renard's point, they're seeing African-American individuals, you know, in these situations that are affecting their families. How do we have the conversations with them to rise above and to really come together instead of the knee-jerk reaction of um, what we need more of is trauma? But I, what I mean by that 
you know, just to be honest, I don't think that continuously oppressing other communities is the answer to to the situation. So we'll start. Why don't we have Sarah? How do you how do you speak to the Chinatown community, the Chinese community about these wedges? Well, I think it's the fact that the racial tension has increased with the escalation of the anti-hate violence incident that happened all over the city or actually in the whole nation. There's many scary videos on social media, and there's a lot of like reports that really taking out of context of what really happened. We have youth that actually, their parents stopped having them coming to our program because they worry about their own safety. We have youth pulled out from a multicultural youth leadership program because they worry that that might brainwash them and give them wrong information. That's a lot of things that we actually have to work against, what's going on in the social media or in the media, or what people People really come and thinking, but you know, it's in the in a few for over twenty five years, violence is not something new to the Asian community. To be honest, what I'm really sick of is whenever there's an incident, then people start talking about it and really escalate the situation and then start scapegoating and also divide a different community. And instead of really looking at it as a long-term problem and also provide long-term solutions. A lot of time when incidents happen, we'll get pulled into like very important discussion with major stakeholders saying that, oh, this is how much resources or funding we can provide. What can you do to change the tie? Or what can you do to really build a safe community? It's always short term, maybe one year, three years, when they see the statistics coming down, then boom, it's gone. They have something else that they need to take care of. And then we we'll wait for the violence incident rise again, then we we'll look at the issue again. So it's been a cycle. So at least I can see, like, it's been a cycle for at least five times in my 25 years tenure at CYC. So that's why, to us, short-term solution is never, never really the answer. We partner with um, a few key agencies in the Asian community, including Chinese for Affirmative Action, Chinese World Progressive Association, CCDC, Chinatown Community Development Center, to really form a coalition for a coalition for community safety and justice. It doesn't only provide immediate solution where we do crisis response to victim of crime or survivor of crime or doing community empowerment workshops, but we also focus on healing process, not just to the Asian community, but also how to be, be really racial solidarity with the black communities. Until we really can build the allyship that we can share our story to really through education to talk to our young people, talk to our mom, our, pa, our dad, our grandparent. What has happened that we both community have suffered in the past, and how how do we get to this point? And both of us definitely definitely have the same issues such as poverty, food security, housing, all these major issues. How instead of dividing us to like you and them, instead of you and I, instead how can we work together to really find a solution for the whole community for both communities? that really tackle the anti-Asian and also anti-blackness from both community. So I just want to say, so I appreciate Reynard's uh, comments earlier, and I, I do think it's important to, to get real, right, to talk about and get in depth around some of these issues. And the fact of the matter is, is that um, as for Japanese Americans, when they were released from the concentration camps with Asian communities who were at war with this country, right, a very common mantra, right, in those communities was to keep their head down, was to work hard, not make waves, right, and that the, the path to more opportunity in this country was assimilating into whiteness, 
right? That was the path forward for many, many Asian communities, right? And that is historical, right? From the late 1940s, right, up until today. And, but what happened along the way is that uh, people in power started to weaponize that, right? Started to use that as a way to create a wedge between communities, right? As to lift up Asian Americans, and I, I always use Ronald Reagan as one of the ultimate examples of this, where he lifted up Asian Americans, right, as a way to point to what communities of color, well, that's how, that's how you should be. Right, that's how you should look, right? And it and it was a very direct rebuke of the black community, right? Just being very honest, right? And that was a way that because while he was lifting up the Asian community, he was cutting programs that s served poor people in this country, right? And that's been a tactic that has been used over and over again. And what I always like to uh, bring it back to is that my organization was started by young people who are part of the Third World Liberation Front, right? It was Asian Americans, black Americans, Latinx, you know, uh, Native Americans working together to make sure that our stories got told in this country, and they changed the world, right? And I always like to point to the fact that when, when that was happening, when students were striking at San Francisco State and UC Berkeley, guess who was the governor of California? Ronald Reagan, right? And he saw the power of communities working together and worked very intentionally to make sure that that would not happen. And so I think that there is that dynamic going on and has been historically, right? It's a very, uh, you know, it's a, ver it's a playbook that happens over and over again. But I, I do have to say that um, there's a lot of work that we do have to do within the Asian American community. We have to have conversations within our community about subscribing, right, to this model minority um, myth, right, that has been conjured up to deflect and, frankly, keep resources away from other communities, right? And I think we have to be aware of that, and there's a lot of challenges with that, right? There's the, the Asian American community is not a monolith. We have pre-1965 immigrants who experience tremendous uh, racism and all sorts of oppression. And then we have the next wave of Asian immigrants post-1965, and they had college degrees, and they had money, and they had professional skills that people wanted in this country, right? So you have two very different dynamics going on, and that just multiplies as you go throughout the year. So there's a lot of work within in our own community that we have to do and we must do because I think we have to think very carefully about the fact that has assimilating towards whiteness kept us safe, right? And I think that that's a very important question that we need to ask ourselves right now. And to the earlier, you know, to the point about um, black on Asian violence, you know, I always like to make sure that I make the point that while that's what many see on the media, when the data is actually collected and it's put together and people analyze it, they'll see that over 80% of the acts of violence against Asians are committed by white males. And yet that's not what you see on the media, and I think we have to ask ourselves, why is that the case? Mm, Anyone else like to comment before we go to the next question? <laughs> 
Um, I want to thank um, Sarah and John for um, pinpointing the need for accountability and calling in your own community. I think that I want to just give an example. When I had the privilege of working um, under Dr. Davis um, at the Human Rights Commission as the director for the Office of Racial Equity, and the HRC had been doing work um, in community and within government in regards to addressing um, racial hate, um, we, you know, when we saw the wave of API hatred and um, had to listen also to our black African-American community. Folks were like, okay, we see y'all, but like, where were y'all with like, you know, with our community when it came to Trayvon Martin? Where were y'all when it came to our community with uh, Mario Woods, right? Where were y'all on some of these other fights when it came to um, racial hate against black folks? And that was super real, right? And I'm never going to tell my community they shouldn't think or feel a certain type of way. But we had to make room for both types of feelings and make space for that because it's true. And I'm all for intersectional organizing. I've been doing that work since I was 19 years old. And it takes that intra-community work, first and foremost, and that realness and that day-to-day. It's also not falling for systemic narratives in media. Um, I will, you know, one particular news anchor who I'm like, is anybody going to call this person in for their portrayals of African-Americans in San Francisco? Um, In when it comes to um, our public education system in San Francisco and how that's been politicized as a football, um, when it comes to the education of our kids, when it comes to our ideas on public safety and what that looks like, right? And do and how are we kept safe and, and who's in charge of that? So all these in the past two years and also with the pandemic, right? And how we've all been impacted by COVID disproportionately, how that's um, hurt our black community and our API community. Um, and it's been a barrage. I, I know I'm tired, but the one thing I can commit to is not being apathetic, um, we don't have time for apathy at all. Um, and I think it's important for us to hear those hard truths and sit in community together. I think it's also important to recognize as the API community is not a monolith, neither is the black community. Um, and there's intro conversations that we need to have with our own folks at our own tables where we feel safe before we come together. And then also we need to not come together during celebration and tragedy. What about the in-between times? When are we doing that work? Me personally, I do that work around the kitchen table because I think that that work happens around food and food justice. But, you know, we can't just wait until something bad happens or everyone gets their particular month and then we see each other. Then we like retreat. I'm like, okay, I'll see you in, you know, next February, John. You know, like that's just not that's just not going to work. So it's that consistent daily commitment it's knowing that this work is messy it's hard um we're gonna fall into landmines we're gonna piss each other off but it's also that commitment to accountability and honesty as or not as brought to it as thank you for that i really appreciate you um and being real about what's really on the table and what are we actually moving towards and I hope that what we're moving towards is housing justice, it's economic justice, it's gender justice. Um, and, you know, f- for the um, 
for us to understand that our liberation is truly linked. You know, how can we all get free? There are so many layers to all of the things that we're covering and um, like to just really pinpoint on something like half of the things that you guys are talking about were in my brain. And it's like we go through so many things on a daily as everyone outside in the, in the audience. Right. I can only speak for me, but I can be a part of something bigger than me. Right. Um, so. I can't speak for every black person in the world. We're all different. And I think as black people, we get held to a high standard, like you're a credit to your race, right? You speak so eloquently, right? You are well-dressed. Like those are like dog whistles to us, right? Um, when, we, when we wake up in the morning, when I wake up in the morning, I'm still Renard from yesterday, but I look myself in the mirror and I say, what can I do to be a better person today? I learn from my mistakes from yesterday and I try to improve on them for today. And I do that with my children. I challenge them. I text them every day, even though they want to hear it. I love you. <laughs> right. And I always say these things. to them. if you ever meet my kids, they'll tell you, I say the same thing to them. Good things happen to good people. Right. Good things happen to good people. And if you're a good person, you're a good organization, good things are going to happen. And the only way things are going to happen in a positive way, and I'm going to keep saying it, is with, is with the unity and the love and the understanding that we can bring to the table. Um, there's so many challenges. Like, again, we brought up data, 80% of this, 70% of this. So at Youth First, when I first started, Literally, we were all black and Samoan, right? I don't need to know any percentages. I can walk inside the room and tell you exactly who's in here. So I'm funded by DCYF, and, you know, they do these surveys, and they do these data, and they give it back to you, right? So they're like, Renard, you're at 40%, you know, Asian. Like, does that make me a better program? You know, I know who I'm serving. They're supposed to just come in here to be better people. It doesn't matter our race. Our race is, is something that we're defined by way too often on what we're trying to achieve goals, right? Um, like Shakira said, checking back in in February, like where were you through the other 11 months, right? That goes for everybody. I try to put myself in the situations where I can support everything that's going on in San Francisco. I'll just pop up. I was just in the Tenderloin last week for their, their Safe Streets Day. That's not my district. I'm not defined by just District 11, right? If we're getting out and we're actually trying to make a change and, and make a difference, you have to put yourself out there. That means some late nights, some late calls, um, but it, it all pays off. I mean, really, it all pays off. There's a gentleman, I'm not going to put him on, I saw him in my, I won't even look over that way, but there's, there's, a, there's a gentleman in here who runs a great program for kids. Um, started off as a basketball program, you know, now it's tutoring, mentoring, all the things that he saw that needed to be added to the program. He and I never really saw eye to eye, right? 
but someone, some being said, hey, Renard, that's not who you are. You need to reach out and say, hey, how can we be better? How can we bring our minds together and serve our community even better? And when they see us collaborating and doing stuff together, watch how many people want to be a part of that. Those are the things that you have to do. Sometimes it's going to be an uncomfortable conversation. Okay? But to get to the other side, you have to be able to go over there. Right? You can't just keep looking. You eventually got to jump in there. And I think the people here tonight, you're jumping in, right? So this is one big panel. And how do we improve our communities leaving here tonight? Thank you so much for that, Renard. And uh, it's LGBTQIA plus month, Pride Month. Harvey Milk once said, I'm here to recruit you. And I'm so happy that we're having this conversation <laughs> intersectionally here at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm going to jump to questions from the audience. We've got plenty. And so um, I'm going to ask for our speakers to be as brief as possible. Some of these questions are pretty deep, though, so I feel for you. Um, <laughs> and I don't want to restrict it to one voice. If you feel really passionate and compelled to add, please do. But know that we are uh, running out of time. We, we got to go share our love and unity up at the rooftop after this. What role, if any, do the police play in building black and Asian solidarity? Who'd like to kick us off with an answer to this question? Uh, I guess I... Um, so, my race is African American. Is that's the label, right? Black. So every day I wake up, this is who I'm going to be. So I can only tell my truth and live my truth. Um, in in the Lakeview area, during the '90s, early 2000s. We had these officers called the TNT officers, right? Um, and they were brutal, right? I mean, just really brutal because they were tasked to, you know, clean up the streets, right? And my question to the captain at that time was, how do you clean up the streets without knowing the streets, right? You're bringing in guys that are not from the community, have no ties to the community, don't know anything about the community, but you're asking them to clean up an area. That's hard to do. Um, so the, the, the police role um, is very important, but they have to be accepting of that role, accepting of the role of knowing who they're serving and how to serve. Um, because their role is that important. They're an extension of the community. Um, I feel like in anything in life, there's constructive criticism and you can be better. So um, I'm gonna look over there at my officers. Honestly, yeah, Chief, I see you over there. Uh, you know that we all can be better. You know that we can do things to build bonds instead of break them, okay? There's a lot of, of things that go wrong in communities, and there's ways to handle them. But if there's open communication between the community and 
you know, the police, I think we can we can build bridges instead of burning them down because the trust is lost, right? And to be honest, as a black man, I'm going to end on this. I've had run-ins with the police that weren't so great, okay? Um, one, one actual run-in actually turned my life completely around as far as how I thought about the police, okay? Um, but I didn't let that affect me as far as my communication skills today. But there's been things that have happened to me personally that I definitely didn't agree with. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, everyone brings up this George Floyd incident, and that was horrific, right? That's was something that the world saw because it's on videotape. It was live and direct. There's a lot of those things that happen when there's no video camera around. And that's what the black community has been yelling for years. Like, what about us? Do you care? There's things that are happening, you know, in the community, in our communities, that are really unfair when it comes to the police. But, again, are all police bad? No way. But a famous person once said, silence, you're just as guilty. Right? Because there's officers that see other officers doing things that they shouldn't, and they need to step up. And it goes the same thing in the community. When we see other community members doing things that they're not supposed to do, we need to step up as a community. When we say the black and Asian um, community need to work together, we need to work together. We can't be a panel and we don't even know each other's name or how to pronounce it. You understand what I'm saying? It's more, it's more than just cameras. It's got to be real work when the cameras aren't around. All right? So that's, that, that's I'm going to end right there. <laughs> John or Sarah, anything to, to offer? I'll give you an opportunity to answer that question. Well, I think a lot of things, I definitely agree. I also think there's a lot of things that can be changed to make it better. Uh, police reform or uh, in Chinatown, there's community policing where the uh, police actually will come down to walk Chinatown on a daily basis to check in with the merchant and also talk to residents and being very responsive. That has been a very, very well respond uh, tactics in Chinatown in certain way. But there are also there are incidents where we see that that there might be um, that the police that didn't really meet the expectation of the client or the victim that we serve, that we need to have better communications. Uh, that's why I think they also started language lines with more than 40 different type of languages that were one number that they could call to make all this report. But also at the same time, there's also a lot of distrust in the system from the Asian community, either because they're being traumatized in, the, in, in their home country or where they're coming from or their bad experience. That really take a long time that we have to build that trust again together. And it can't be just between the community and the cop, the police, but it's a whole community together to have a candid and honest conversation. And also to be the eyes and the ears on the street and in the community and really bring up the voice of what the community needs. 
Thank you so much. I'm going to go for a couple more questions and then let's head up to the rooftop and continue our conversation. So if I didn't get to your question, I'm super sorry, but our speakers will be available for you to continue the conversation and do the work. Um, here's a question for one of you to answer. Unity is good, but you're preaching to the choir, kumbaya. What is being done to engage with those in the black community who have continued to attack and victimize elderly Asians? Shakira, I feel like you would really like to yeah, answer this. I don't this. think we're no. preaching kumbaya. Yeah. No one, want, no one is asking for that. What I, again, what we're calling for is accountability within communities, um, intra-communities, and intersectionally across communities as well. And that is a daily practice, and that is a disciplined conversation that happens with, with a lot of the work that each organization represented here is doing. Is it perfect? No. Um, I want us to take a step back and think about um, what it means for everyone to feel safe. Um, the same sort of black kids that folks might walk by and hold their pocketbook a little bit closer to them don't necessarily feel safe in San Francisco, that they're welcomed anywhere, actually. There's no place for, I think, teens to really hang out in this city. Um, their belly is just as empty as our elder, our API elders. Three-fifths of black families in San Francisco are living in poverty. Forty percent of API elders are living um, below the poverty line. Right? So a lot of this stuff is around economic injustice. I can also tell you that if you look at FBI statistics when it comes to hate crimes and hate incidences, nationally and in California, the group that disproportionately experiences hate crimes are black African-Americans. So, you know, it's, this is not oppression Olympics. This is not like, what about the what about the zone? This is about us sitting together, having real conversations, showing up every day, and making sure that we're doing the best that we can to fight on an individual level. Racism is institutional and interpersonal. You have to fight it from all sides, and it takes everybody everywhere. So I would ask the same person, what are you doing to have conversations in your community to make sure that this is not being perpetuated? Who are you talking to that doesn't look like you? Who's coming to your dinner table? I love asking white people, when's the last time you had a black person over for dinner? <laughs> Usually it's hard to answer. So I just want, I just want, I don't mean to be like, mm -hmm. yes, I am being aggressive because I'm angry. And there's nothing wrong with being, having being an angry black woman. But I do want to say that like, let's not essentialize people's life experiences and put people into buckets as if our communities do not hold multitudes and cannot work together. Um, it is hard, it is rough, but I would also say we gotta hold all of us accountable to the table. So there's no, that's just, that's just Shakira, but. Can, can I just add really quick, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I just wanna, I, I always like to make the point that when I'm talking about my own community, that my father and my mother had nothing to do with the attack on Pearl Harbor. Okay, they had zero to do with it. They were born in this country. They had never been to Japan. They had nothing to do with the attack on Pearl Harbor, and yet every one of every member of our community was blamed for it. 
Okay. Just because there was a crime committed by one black person does not mean that they are all should be thrown into the same bucket and those characteristics associated with an entire race of people. And I think that is where we get ourselves in trouble, right, as a society. When we see one person doing things that we don't know, a group of people that we do not have relationships that we do not interact with on a regular basis, right? We want to assign the acts of one or two people to an entire group of people, and I think that's one of the areas, right, that we have to get better as a society. We have to get to know each other. We have to get to know people on an individualized basis, right, and understand that every person is an individual, and the act of one does not represent an entire group of people. Can I add a little bit? Um, I mean, to be honest, as an Asian, when I see my grandma, grandpa, my mom that could be a target of violence, I get really angry. Me too. I would have my rage and I was really getting very aggressive. Like, why, why are we being target? But also when I'm looking back, especially when I'm working with young people, we do a lot of crisis response at school. A lot of those are actually related to racial tension between ethnic groups in the school. And what we have find out that the only way we can give these young people a safe place is not to, tell, is not to teach young people why it's not okay to be anti-blackness. It's actually how to help these young people build friendship and also get to know the other community. Also get to know the other like black students, like if they're about the history, they start making friends then they start really to turn around that don't think because of one incident, like John said, they turn into everybody who's black in the school is going to bully me. It's not the case, but that's the only way. If we can change it to young people at school level by working together, even our crisis response team has to be multicultural. It's not only the Asian or Chinese uh, outreach worker. It's actually a multicultural group that represents different community that we can first start off with sitting, talking to our own community, getting to their buy-in, then have everybody actually sit around the table, break bread, and also have an honest conversation, then that's really where we start to build a safer community. Mm-hmm. Bernard, do you have the last words? Ring last words, As brief as possible, and I, I uh, want to make sure, Director Davis, um, you're on call, so come on up. It's close for closing remarks. Bernard. So again, I'm going to restate what I said earlier about timing and really doing the work as far as, unfortunately, it's unfortunate for so, so many reasons. It's unfortunate that we don't have enough time on this panel to cover all these layers, right? That's the first thing, and I want to apologize for that. Um, but secondly, it's unfortunate um, what has been publicized um, to the Asian elderly population as far as, you know, the violence. If you don't think that people that look like me care and it didn't bother us or doesn't bother us, you're sadly mistaken. Because when I see that Asian elderly person on the ground, that could be my grandmother. Right. That could be my grandfather. We are taught to treat people with respect. Treat people how you want to be treated. So when I I'm not upset by that question at all. You know, I didn't like the kumbaya part, but I'm not upset. I'm not upset by it at all. But I challenge everybody in this room, and I'm gonna keep challenging. What are we doing to be better? What are we doing? Not I, 
there's so many times that I'm in front of the line leading the group, but there's so many times I'm in the back of the line just supporting. So one of my ex-team members started a safety advocacy program called District 11 uh, Safety Advocates. This was a reaction to what was going on, kind of on your point. We're reactive people, okay? So he started this safety initiative in our district. So I work Monday through Friday, but on my Saturdays, I was getting up in my community on Ocean Avenue, all through District 11, handing out safety kits, doing safe passage for the Asian families. But I will say this, there was some resistance because of my color. And it's okay, because we're trying to build bridges, right? But I did challenge my ex-team member, where is the safe passage for our African-American families to get them to school, to get them there safe? Where's those safety advocacy programs to stop these drugs getting flooded into our communities, to stop putting these guns in our community, right? All of us are important in change, okay? So don't ask someone what they're doing if you're not standing right next to them doing the same thing. Challenge yourself to be better because there are good people in every race. There are good people doing great things. It's, it's just unfortunate that those lights can't be shined on it all the time. Like I started off tonight, there's systems in place to make sure that there's division. You guys understand that? There are systems in place to make sure there are divisions. There's a reason why there's districts. <laughs> Y'all don't hear me. <laughs> Michelle, one last thing. thing. Shakira, one last thing. I also want to say, um, and thank you, everybody for being here tonight. I also want to say, you know, tomorrow the Supreme Court is going to release 30 decisions on a Wednesday, which is rare for the Supreme Court. And they're going to be making some landmark decisions that are coming down. They've also told um, Capitol Police to lock the building. They're coming for us, y'all. It is so important that we figure out a way and continue our coalition building because so much of this goes beyond San Francisco. We've been able to build in this beautiful, seemingly progressive city, but like we need to look beyond what's happening these seven by seven miles and understand what's happening to our communities that look just like us in the South, in the Midwest, and even right here in California. And I wanna make sure that we have room and space for those conversations as well, because we may not have a choice. I said earlier today, apathy is not an option. And I really hope if you take anything from today that you remember that. We're running out of time. Hopefully the revolution is here. <laughs> and I am hope to stand with anybody, like black, API, Latino, wherever you come from, to get this work done. So thanks.
Obviously, we need more of these discussions. We have a lot of work to do. Let's continue the work. Um, and uh, thank you so much, all of you, for joining us for this very important discussion. More programming at CommonwealthClub.org. To give us our final closing remarks, uh, Director Cheryl Davis. Give another round for this panel here. Um, there's like, I'm sitting in the back and, and I felt like it wasn't kumbaya, but it was definitely the amen corner over there. I was glad to have Veronica Shepard in the space with me. Um, I think that part of this conversation, and I know Renard shared uh, a little bit of the feedback he had been getting and, um, you know, have had the really great pleasure to work with everyone here. And Michelle, remember we did, gosh, in the beginning of the pandemic, one of these conversations. And, you know, the hard part is folks are like, it's not just Asian and black. We need to have these conversations. And the narrative that we're doing when we do this conversation like this makes it seem like it only is. And I think the, the real challenge is the question that came at the end, right? How do we have what we were calling courageous conversations? How do we talk about the things that are most difficult? And I think part of this beginning was we needed to have these folks here because the false narrative around who's hurting who and who we're afraid of needs to be had. But it has to be done really in um, safe spaces. And so these folks know each other, and we can begin to have some of that conversation in a way that if it wasn't, um, folks that had relationship, again, back to what we heard from folks here, it could be much more contentious and nasty and something that, that blows up. Um, I think we all have to model that. So listening to what you heard tonight, thinking about what you heard tonight, I think more of us need to be doing, I see our city librarian, Michael Lambert, thank you for being here, Michael. Um, more of us need to be doing like Michael and like Chief Scott. We have to go to places where people may not think we should be, right? Where the work that we do actually might be counter to what we think, right? Police are not always, and you know, Chief and I have had these, they're not always welcome. And sometimes the chief knows that his presence is going to set people off. In the same way, we have to walk into spaces prepared to really set things off. Folks who know me know I am a big fan of poetry. I taught kindergarten for a long time, and I feel like the, the things I learned as a kindergarten teacher are so applicable to all the adults. <laughs> the difference is kindergarten students listen to me, adults blow me off. So, um, but, but I thought about this poem, which was not by any means for kindergartners, but I think, I think about the work of Maya Angelou, one of my favorite poets, and she, she had the book, but she also had a poem, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. And so we all come into this space, we all are looking for our freedom, and sometimes in our fight for our freedom, we fight the wrong thing or the wrong person. And, and there's a line in the poem that says, the caged bird stands on the grave of dreams. That idea keeps coming to me, the grave of dreams. So often we think we're standing at the end of it, right? Like we're looking at it and the possibility of collaboration and partnership and all those things are lost. The, he stands on the grave of dreams. His shadow shouts at nightmare screams. His wings are clipped. His feet are tied. 
for the cage bird sings of freedom. And I think we've lost our, unfortunately, our song. We've lost our kumbaya because we become so jaded, right? But the caged bird, even in the midst of all the nastiness in the cage and not being free, still dreams of it, still sings of it, right? The caged bird sings with a fearful trill. We're all afraid, but we have to be willing and strong enough to sing of things unknown but long for still. His tune is heard on a distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. So I ask you all, do not stop singing. Do not stop dreaming. Do not lose the hope that because yet another thing has shown up on the TV, or yet another thing has been said, or some experience, or that you walk down the street and you feel uncomfortable, do not lose hope. Because the minute that we lose hope, we lose. So much like that caged bird... Continue to sing, continue to believe, and continue to build relationships that can transform not just your block, not just your house, but actually transform the city. So thank you so much, Michelle and Derek, for dreaming and putting this on tonight. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. We'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization working to support the most vulnerable of all the victims, the children. Voices of Children is a Ukrainian organization dedicated to ensuring no child is left to deal with the trauma of war alone. Working at the front lines of the Russian invasion in villages along the Donetsk and Luhansk region, Voices of Children provides a variety of services like art therapy, video storytelling, mobile youth psychologists, and more. If you'd like to help or learn more about Voices of Children and their critical work, please visit voices.org.ua/en. Thank you for listening.